0: Hello. Thank you, technology. Let's pray again. God, we thank you um, that you um, came down and lived a miraculous life, that you performed miracles, that you lived a perfect life, and that you show us what it is to live a life of abundance. Will you please speak to us tonight as we look into your word? In your name, amen. I thought we'd start by having a little fun tonight. Since this passage is in a wedding, I googled the f- top 5 most expensive weddings of all time. Does anybody have any guesses of, of who may be in the top 5? The king do you say king of Russia? The king of Prussia? No, I know you said Kim Kardashian. Okay. Well, um <laughs> I'll tell you that they were number five. Kim Kardashian married Kanye West. If you don't know who they are, you are a blessed individual. Um, and their wedding cost between 20 and 30 million dollars. Now I have to give you dollars. The site that I found is in dollars. 20 and 30, between 20 and 30 million dollars. How expensive is your wedding that it's give or take 10 million dollars? Unbelievable. Number four is a little closer to home. We've got Prince William and Kate Middleton. $34 million. Now, I think for a wedding in central London, that's fairly reasonable. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just, you know, it's, that, it's an expensive deal, okay? Number, the, the, the fourth one, or the third one is uh, Venetia, Mittal, and Emmett, Batia. 78 million, they're a kind of Indian royalty, and they got married in France, and they flew their guests over from India, they flew over chefs, unbelievable. Now, that was 78 million, now the top two jump significantly, okay? The next one, I'm not going to read his whole name, is Sheikh Mohammed and Princess Salama, A $100 million for their wedding. They built a stadium to hold their reception, Who's thinking of this? And by the way, they split up. Okay, um, <laughs> that's the shame. I Google us like, wow, it's like they just drive by that. They drive by that whole you know stadium and it's like, oh, what a mistake. Okay, um, the first, the most expensive. Now this is what they've done is they have taken the amount and they've you know made it up to date based on inflation. Charles and Diana, a hundred and ten million dollars. That's a lot of money. Yeah. If you think of where it went, the celebration you think where did all that money go? Where did all of my taxpayer money went? Well I was in America, so I didn't spend anything. But um they had uh three thousand five hundred people at their actual ceremony, a hundred and twenty at the reception. Now I feel like that's not a lot. A hundred and twenty for a family breakfast, twenty-seven wedding cakes. You've got these weddings that are absolutely over the top. Opulent. Decadent. I think if we had gone to any of those weddings, we would say that was the party of the century. There was literally, well, not maybe, you know, either, any one of them would be so over the top. And yet we've got Jesus who's at a wedding and he is the VIP cast of all time. And it's a very different situation. This is not a wedding that is over the top. In fact, in the midst of this great party, there is a need. For wine, they've run out of wine. And God uses this situation, Jesus uses this situation of being out of wine to turn it on its head and teach us a really valuable lesson. And it's a lesson about being abundant in God. To have a life in godly abundance. And this godly abundance is worth more than any of those previous weddings. I'd rather be rich in God's abundance than spend $40 million on a wedding and have really nice cake for a day. Yeah? So I think that this idea of abundance is more than enough. And maybe we don't always say abundance, but what we do say is maybe a question in our hearts of how can I know that I'm a successful Christian? How can I know that I am doing the right things with God? These are the questions we might ask ourselves. I think within this passage... There are keys to unlock an abundant life with God. A life that is deep and rich with God. That's what we want to look at. The keys that we can see to live an abundant life in God. And we're going to do that three ways. First, we're going to look at Mary and her conversation with Jesus and how that was God's path to abundance. The second thing we're going to look at is the jars and the miracle that happened from water to wine, that, that, how that is the nature of God's abundance. And lastly, we're going to look at glory and how that is the goal of God's abundance. Let me just pray one more time. God, just even thinking about this, your abundance, how wonderful it is. I'm awestruck by the fact that you would have performed a miracle that we can read about and learn about. I ask again that you would open up for us your abundance. In Jesus' name, Amen. So to start this, let's place ourselves at this wedding. I'm sure all of us have been to a wedding or you've had your own. It's a time of conversations, everybody's sitting around conversing with one another, strangers, good friends, um, people at different tables. Like any great party, there's a buzz of excitement when it's going well. But in order for a party to go really well or a wedding, there is the undercurrent of administration that has to happen to lift it up. And a great party is signposted by nobody knowing that anything is going wrong as someone who's worked at church for a long time, this is a lot of what we spend our time doing, is just making sure nobody knows uh, there's stuff going on behind the scenes that needs to be fixed. And this is exactly what's happened. Everyone's having a great party, everyone is spending time together, but there is an emergency brewing. You've got Mary, the the mother of Jesus, who would have been related to um, the bride and groom, coming to Jesus. That's why she was in catering. And she comes to Jesus and she says, we are out of wine. Now, for us, that's really not that big a deal. We view weddings as a time where people get to come and enjoy what we have. And when it's out, well, that's just that's just how it is. Maybe it's time to switch to Diet Coats. Not that big a deal. We've used up all the wine. Maybe you should have, you know, budgeted that a little bit more around your table. But not so in this culture. It's very different At this time, the whole culture was based on caring for and looking after one another. And so, to come to a wedding and being expected to be taken care of, and then to run out of wine, would have been the ultimate offense. There are stories of this time where people sued um, people, a bride and groom, for having run out of wine, because it was so offensive. And in this little town, this little area of the world in Cana, this would have been huge for this couple. They would have been a black mark on them. They would have been ostracized. They actually would have been talked about for the rest of their married life as the couple that ran out of wine. So this is no small thing. I don't think there's even a cultural offense that's as big of a deal for us today. This is massive. So when Mary comes to Jesus and says, We are out of wine. She is in hysterics. This is huge. But we have this conversation now between Jesus and her. And Jesus responds, if you see in verse four, he says, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. This kind of feels like a jarring response. It doesn't kind of make sense. And let's see why. First of all, woman is not a great translation. The closer would be my dear. Like, a, there's warmth in that. But he definitely does cool off to mary his mother he says why do you involve me my hour has not yet come well i think this here in this area there is a really interesting reason why you see jesus is just stepping into and starting his ministry he's no longer just mary's boy he is also the messiah as much as he is flesh he is spirit and he is stepping out And from the very beginning, he's making it clear that he will only do what he sees God doing. He will not be moved by family ties. He will not be changed by needs and requests. Only if he sees God and and God saying, do this, will he do it. So his response to Mary is him saying, no, thank you. Sorry, but me being your son is not a good enough reason for me to do this miracle. And he actually distanced himself. Now Mary could have a response of anger, frustration. She could shake him off and get angry. You're my son, what's happening? But instead, Mary, who is amazing, she turns around and she tells her servants, do whatever he says. And this is wonderful. And it could be so missed when we look at this passage. But what Mary is doing is she's coming in need as a mother And when she encounters Jesus, she shifts and becomes a believer. She says, whatever you you do, she moves from need to faith. That is what's happening here. She's moving from her agenda to God's agenda. In a time of need, she says, Jesus, whatever you want, do. And in this situation, when she takes this narrow road of just need and she broadens it to God do whatever you want in this place a miracle happens this language it may seem like it's just kind of happening here a little bit but the truth is is that um, this principle of moving from um, God's agenda from your agenda to God's agenda is pulled all the way through the life of Jesus we see again when he's teaching people to pray later he says, Father in heaven, holy is your name. Not my will be done. Hold on. The great, what's the, my mind's gone blank. The big prayer. You know, you memorized it. The Lord's Prayer. Let's just start the Lord's Prayer together. My mind's gone blank. (laughs) Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Oh, man, Lord's Prayer. I only say it every morning. Um, your will be done. He says it really clearly. Your will be done. And again, when he's in his real ultimate place of need, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out, God, not my will be done, but your will be done. This is no small thing for Jesus to see that it has to be about God's will and not his own. Now, for me, I encountered this when I was kind of around 19 years old for the first time. And I um, had gone to my first job interview, and oddly enough, it was to be a youth worker at a church. And I was excited to have gotten an interview. I went to it. It was my first formal interview. Lesson learned. It's good to prepare for those. It did not go well. I just absolutely flubbed this interview, not happy with it. I came home. And I had put all my eggs in the basket of getting this job. And I just thought, I lost it. I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get my opportunity to work at work at this church. So I'm kind of moving about. I'm not happy. And all my roommates go to bed. And I just turn the lights off and I just sit in the dark. Because i kind of, I'm in a dark place. And I sit there in quiet for a while. And then I start kind of praying. And I start asking God. I say, God, will you please give me this job? Will you move their minds? Will you intervene? Will you move past my horrible interview and somehow give me this job? Please, I want it so bad. And it was quite an emotional plea of, God, please, could you step in? I really need you to answer this prayer in this way. Give me that job. What happened, though, was that somewhere in the middle of the night, my prayers began to change. I began to say, God... Whatever your will is, have it. God, whether this job happens or not, I trust you. And it felt like as if my prayers had been on the surface. And when I moved into that place of saying, God, whatever happens, I trust you. It was like my prayer life delved deep in a place that I had never been before. A new place where there was a deep trust in God. And what it did for me at that time is it took off the stress of needing to hear about that job. Because I couldn't fail. Either way, I trusted God with my life. Whether I got it or not, I could trust it to God. It brought peace to me. Deep peace. I did get the job, by the way. But that's irrelevant. It, It brought that peace to me. You know, over the time that I've been living in my 20s, this principle seems like a basic one. But I've actually seen over and over and over again people who have prayed, friends of mine who have prayed, on the surface of, God, give me this exact thing. But not going to that deeper place of saying, whatever happens, actually, God, I trust you. When they stay on that surface, and they say, God, do this one thing, and when he doesn't do it exactly as they prayed it, they begin to have accusations in their heart against God. They begin to say, is God really real? He hasn't answered my prayers, I asked. Can I really trust God if he doesn't answer prayer? Who am I praying to? Surely he's not listening. And accusations begin to form, and I've seen people leave their relationship with God and leave the church over this truth. You'll always be invited to go to that deeper place. That switch like Mary went through, where you say, actually, it's not about what I think. It's about what you think. about what you want this is wonderful and we actually see now that Jesus does step in he responds to Mary as she's moved into this new way of believing and he does a miraculous miracle he changes water into wine. his first miracle ever it's stunning and the thing is, is that this is not some kind of airy fairy thing this is an actual physical miracle There was a wedding that Jesus was at. There was wine that was needed. And he turned actual water into actual wine. He stepped into the physical and he provided loads and loads of wine. An abundance of wine. They said he provided 2,000 glasses of wine. He didn't just show up with a bottle and said, here you go. 2,000 glasses, gallons and gallons and gallons of wine, an abundance of wine. See, Mary expected that maybe he could do something, work something out, but she did not expect that he would do that. He provided an abundance of wine. He works in the actual physical. God is a God who cares about your physical needs. He's a God of abundance in the physical. But this water that was changed into wine, it also has symbolism and significance beyond just the physical. It moves into the spiritual as well. You see, in the Old Testament, wine represented the age of Messiah. I want to read you scripture in Amos. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains, and flow from all the hills and i will bring my my people israel back from exile they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them they will plant vineyards and drink their wine they make gardens and eat their fruit this is just one of many many verses about wine being used as the age and reign of messiah When people there in that culture would have seen that first miracle, it would have declared, this is the day of Messiah. The new reign is here. And it's done miraculously. It's the year, it's the day, it's the season of new wine. You see, God is also abundant in the spiritual. He takes the plan of God that has been all the way back from the garden And has been moving throughout the Old Testament. And he moves it right into the New Testament. And he continues to be a part of and the answer for the season and, and way of God. He takes together this spiritual and the natural. And he's abundant in both. It is significant. But this wine isn't just about meeting a physical need. And it's not just about declaring who he is. There's one other symbol of this wine, and the readers of John would have known it. That wine represents his final hour, the hour where he goes to the cross. It represents his perfect blood being shed and him defeating sin through his resurrection. This is God's abundance and redemption. See, what Jesus does is He takes the natural and He takes the spiritual and He marries them together in redemption. This wine that was used for cleansing of the outside of the body is just a small representation of the Old Covenant. But God comes in, Jesus comes in, and He does more than just clean the outside of the hands for a minute. He takes away the deep sin of the hearts. He reconciles God and man together as much as He is God and man. He is abundant in His reconciliation. This is no small thing to bring together nature and spiritual. And that's what He does. Shouldn't we say, Who is this God that I would give these important things to Him and say, Not my will, but your will be done? Well, Jesus is a God who sees it from all angles. He cares about your physical life. He knows about the spiritual plans and He brings them together in your life. It's pretty stunning. Let's look at the last point now. In verse 11 we see what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He re- revealed His glory and the disciples believed in Him. God's glory Jesus' glory is his perfection, his holiness, his wonderful godness on display for all to see. He is a man who has been walking through life for 30 years, living this life of flesh in perfection. And at this wedding, he reveals himself as more than just a man. He puts his glory on display. He starts to show people who he really is, Messiah. And their answer to this is belief. You see, God sees it, Jesus sees it from all angles. He sees what people need to see, their hearts. He sees the spiritual side. He puts it all together and he puts himself on display so that people can see him and move in belief. This is the motivation of Jesus. This might seem hard as a concept, that the whole goal, whole process of these miracles, the whole process of us moving in the shift of will is just for the glory of God. But I think we're closer to it than maybe we think. If we think about life to the full that's coming up, I don't think anyone really wants it to be just a series of great lectures. I think that would be disappointing if it was just a really good series of talks. But I think what we really want from life to the full is for people to encounter God and have their hearts go on a journey of saying, actually, I'm interested in who Jesus is. I want to know who He is. See, what that is, that desire, that is a desire for God's glory in Claygate. And actually, we have that desire because we have Jesus in us. It means that we want to see God's glory. And when we actually see it, we are satisfied. It is not a selfish thing that God wants His glory. It moves for His glory. We, as His creation, are most excited and most fulfilled when we also take part in His glory. This is the point. So we can see here what we've talked about. We've talked firstly about the shift, where we've seen this move of Mary, where she's gone from someone who is coming to Jesus based on need, but goes away as a woman of faith. And she says, "Not basically saying, not my will, but Jesus, your will be done. And we see that this trust enables Jesus to do a miracle that is above and beyond her expectation, one that moves in abundance in the natural, one that moves in abundance of the supernatural, and is abundant in his reconciliation. And what this does is it opens up and shows off who Jesus is, so that people can see His glory. And what it means is that believers come forward, they follow Jesus, they walk with Him. This is the whole miracle in a nutshell. But what does it mean for us? This is the thing that I've I've been really challenged by this. And I've thought of, what is the key things, the things that are really things of need within our own hearts? Think to yourself of that thing that if you were to go to prayer and I said to you, pray that one thing that you really pray a lot about. Pray that one thing that always stands out, that always seems to come back. Maybe for you it's that you'd have a home for your family or that you'd make more money in your job. Maybe it's for health. Maybe it's for a loved one that they'd find Jesus or that they'd come back into a relationship with you. What is that big thing that you need God in? Just have have a think. What is it? What is that thing that is so specific that you keep on asking for a specific answer to that prayer? God, would you do this in my situation? God, would you help me with my exam results if I could just get through this, if you would answer me in this way? Then I know you're real. So what I want you, what I want to invite you to do tonight is to take that thing that you're holding onto and praying for. And I want you to open your hands and make that shift and say, God, not my will be done, but yours. What do you want to do with this area in my life? How do you want to move, God? Let your will be done. Let's take a moment now and close our eyes. And pitch your hands open with that thing, that issue.